Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning, to gather in your presence, uh, to be filled with your spirit, to give our hearts and our minds to you because we want to learn now. Uh, We've been singing your praises. We've been rehearsing the fact that your love is sufficient, uh, that you are worthy of our praise. And now, God, you are worthy of our attention. So please speak to us. Uh, Be with the students and the leaders who come down the mountain this afternoon, God, and we pray that as they come down, they would be taking with them the fact that you have impacted them and you have changed them uh, and just give them safety too as they travel. We're thankful for all those leaders that took up their weekend and gave that to you in order to serve these students. We really give thanks to you for those leaders. Uh, Now speak to us, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are learning from the greatest talk ever given in the history of the human race. Uh, The President of the United States this past week gave his State of the Union. You could actually say that the Sermon on the Mount is sort of Jesus' State of the Universe. Uh, He's really talking about, you know, what is the state of things? What's uh, ultimate reality? There's a guy named Dallas Willard, uh, an author who I really appreciate, his books and things that I've read over the years. Um, Dallas Willard says that there are four great questions of life that everybody has to grapple with, does grapple with, whether they're aware of that fact or not. And he says the four great questions are these. One, what is real? That's a metaphysical question. Is reality just material reality or is there another reality, a spiritual reality? Is there more to life than just the material? What is real? Everybody answers that question. Uh, Second and third question, what is the good life and who is a good person? Those are ethical questions. What is the good life? Who is a good person? Very, very important. And then the fourth question, how do you become a good person? That's kind of a teleological question. I mean, it's ethical uh, as well, but it's a question about purpose. You know, what do you give your life to? What's important? What matters in your life? How do you become a good person? And everybody has to answer those questions whether you want to or not. Uh, You do that by how you live. Uh, How you live is an evidence of the answers that you give to those questions. These are inescapable questions. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives his four answers to those great questions. Question number one, what is most real? Or ask it another way, what can you absolutely and and, uh, most count on? Well, Jesus' answer is this, God, God and his kingdom. God and his reign, God and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says the foundation of all existence is not as is widely thought in our day. It's not a random material universe. That's not ultimate metaphysical truth. It's not a giant meaningless machine that we participate in through a process of purely evolution. It's not quarks, it's not photons, it's a person. Newsflash, a person, a personal God of immense power and immense wisdom, immense love, goodness, justice, and I could keep going. That's why Jesus says um, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say it a little later, he's going to say, seek first the kingdom of God. Why? Because it is ultimate reality. It's more real or just as real as you sitting here this morning. Uh, That's what is real. Second question, what is the good life? And we all want to know that. We all really do. Another way we ask it a lot of times is, 
what will make me happy? You know, what is the good life? And Jesus answered that in the Beatitudes, and it's a surprising answer. The good life, contrary to contemporary wisdom, is not based on wealth. Your wealth isn't going to give you a good life. It's not based on your IQ. It's not based on your attractiveness, the luxurious hair you have. I'm not jealous. The white teeth, whatever. It's not that. The good life is available to anybody who is in partnership with God and living in God's kingdom. You and I, right where we are right now, wrestling with the stuff that we're wrestling with right now in our lives, we can be blessed. We can live the good life, be living the dream, experiencing the good life. That is Jesus' promise to everyone who would simply step into and live in the kingdom of God. And we do that by faith. The third question, who is a good person? Folks are really fuzzy about this. You know, what does it mean to be a good person? Jesus says a good person is someone who is pervaded by God's love. It's that simple, pervaded by God's love. And because of that, they routinely will and seek to do good to other people. They will the good of other people. So the good person is not a rule breaker or a rule keeper or anything like that. That's not what being good is. And that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus often contrasts, and we've run into this already. He says, you have heard that it was said, you know, thou shalt not murder. And that's, that's rule keeping. That's law keeping. That's behavioral compliance. And Jesus will use that phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and then he starts talking about inner transformation. Starts talking about heart change, not, you know, behavioral compliance. Now, that's, uh, that's the way Jesus answers number three, the question number three. Question number four, how do you become a good person? Well, you put your full confidence in this Jesus. You become his disciple, a learner of Jesus. You become his apprentice. You become a student of his life and his teachings. And you seek with sincere heart and the help of God to creatively and powerfully obey him in everything. That's how you become a good person. Now, the reason the Sermon on the Mount is the most influential talk in human history, it's not that Jesus got lucky and you know, pulled off a TED talk or something. It's not random like that at all. It is simply that no one, no one else answers the four great questions of life in a way that brings anywhere near the same amount of guidance or wisdom that Jesus' answers have been providing for over 2,000 years. That's why. That's why it's the greatest talk ever given. And Jesus' own life manifested this wisdom that he talked about. It's an example of that wisdom, and it does so in a way that it inspires people. It has inspired people. It's going to continue to inspire people for thousands of years more if he continues to tarry and not come back. So you picked a great weekend to be here. Tomorrow, if somebody at school or in your neighborhood or at work asks you, hey, what are the four great questions of life? You can tell them the questions. You can give them the four answers. And we haven't even started the sermon yet. This is bonus material, free of charge stuff. It's just a summary of what's going on, you know, uh, in the greatest talk that was ever given in all of human existence. So today now, we're going to dive in in Matthew chapter 6. 
We're going to look at just one verse, just one verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is actually giving us a warning against a common mistake that people made in terms of how they go about pursuing the good life and how they try to, uh, to look good to other people. And, and again, this is a warning from Jesus to us, just as it was to them. And there's a bunch of stuff going to follow that we'll look at together in the weeks ahead. But this is what Jesus says. He says, be careful. Anytime Jesus says, be careful, you need to be careful. Be careful not to practice your righteousness. That's an important word. Practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. That's the one verse we're gonna look at together this morning. Now, the condition that Jesus addresses here is really what in our day, we might, we might label it this way. We might call it approval addiction. Anybody here have a problem with approval addiction? Just me. Oh, I say, okay, just the pastor mostly, one or two others of us. The rest of you, this is not a problem in your life. Uh, approval addiction is living in bondage to what other people think. To make my life uh, a performance to be seen by them, it's the disease to please is what it really is. It's a disease to please and it can dominate your life. And Jesus will go on in Matthew chapter six to talk about how, you know, in that day, people would often do this, try to get people's approval by showing people, you know, how much they were giving or how much they were praying or how much they were fasting. In his day, often you could pursue status by flaunting how devout you were. Now we live in a much less religious culture than the culture in which Jesus was living and moving. And so we tend to do this in other ways. Believe me, we still do it. We just aren't trying to impress people with our, um, our devotion to God so much. Uh, we do it in other ways. But the underlying temptation is still there to try to live for other people's opinions rather than who I actually just am, who, who I am before God. And so it's so interesting how we can take something good. And in Jesus' day, it was giving, it was praying, it was fasting. Uh, but in our day, it could be getting good grades in school. That's a good thing. But we can take something like that or something like work performance. It's a good thing to work hard and perform well at work. Or it could be my body. It's probably obvious to a lot of you that I kind of worship my body a little bit. It's, you know, uh, that's why it looks this way. And and, uh, or it could be your family. Sometimes we'll, we will be so devoted to our family, so proud of our family. We actually use our family to impress others, to have others approve of us. But all those things are good things, but I can use that to win other people's approval. And as I'm doing that, I'm really just trying to feed my ego. It's approval addiction. And uh, when you do this, most of the time, you're not even aware you're doing it. That's way, the way many addictions work. You're addicted and you don't even know it. Approval addiction works that way. Anytime you're trying to win somebody's approval, uh, you cannot acknowledge that you're trying to win their approval. Am I right? I mean, this is a game we play because nobody will give you approval if they think that you are an approval junkie. They will withhold their approval. And that's a painful thing. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter six, people are giving, they're praying, they're fasting because they want to impress other people. They want to be seen by others, but they have to pretend like the reason they're doing all this praying and fasting and giving is just simply because they love God. And Jesus points a finger right at that. And actually in the verses that follow, he calls it hypocrisy. 
Hypocrisy is a real thing. It's actually a real thing in all of us, in all churches. Hypocrisy. Uh, It's a terrible thing when it gets into relationships. It's a terrible thing when it gets into and takes deep root in churches. Always got to be on guard against hypocrisy. Uh, When that happens, we find ourselves trying to deceive people about who we really are. And uh, we all wrestle with this. Actually, nobody is exempt from this problem. Some wrestle with it more than others. I know I do. Now, in the remainder of our time this morning, what I want to do is talk about three things with you. Number one, I want to describe what approval addiction really is. We'll talk a little bit about that. Number two, I want to look at the consequences of living your life seeking the approval of others. There are consequences, and they are not good. And then number three, I want to talk about what Jesus says are two great antidotes to the problem of seeking the approval of others, approval addiction. He gives us two very practical things that we can do that help break the back of this addiction in our lives. There's an author by the name of Mitch Prinstein, and he has written a fascinating book. I'm just about done with it. It's called Popular. Fascinating. Uh, He's done a ton of research in this area. And he's also uh, analyzed a bunch of research that others have done. And he says that about the time when you enter high school, there is this chemical change that's happening in your brain. Research has demonstrated this. Your brain is changing because of certain chemical things that are happening. And that chemical change makes popularity about the most important priority in your life. Parents, have you ever noticed how your children, as they go into high school, start to care less about your opinion and more about whose opinion? Their peers, right? It's just this thing, this popularity thing happens to everybody. And here's the deal. Those changes that are taking place at that time when you're entering into high school, those changes stick with you for the rest of your life. They don't go away. Swallow hard. That, that's kind of a problem. Uh, it turns out sometimes too, this whole thing of being popular in the research that this gentleman has done, it turns out the most popular kid, head cheerleader, uh, captain of the football team, whoever it is we're talking about, that kid is oftentimes very miserable, turns out. Uh, it turns out that being popular doesn't necessarily lead to being happy, not at all. Uh, it doesn't necessarily lead to living the good life, not at all. Uh, Princeton distinguishes between two different kinds of popularity. This is fascinating to me, maybe not to you, but tough. It's my sermon. Uh, The first, he, he talks about two kinds of popularity. The first one he calls status popularity. And uh, status is how you impress other people. For example, if you're a rock star, you just have a certain status And because of that status, people don't know you, but they look up to you. You're popular. You have a certain power and a a certain prestige just because of the status that you have. If you're rich, if you're beautiful, I mean, knock down, drop, dead beautiful. I run into this problem all the time. If you're powerful, if you're just super famous, and that's interesting too, because fame has become a big, big deal in our age. Do you know that anybody can be famous? You know how? Just get active on YouTube. That's all you got to do. And you can become a famous person. And this has become a a real driver in a lot of young people, how to be famous. Well, I'm going to do something on YouTube that will grab everyone's attention and keep it, right? And this all starts in high school. Uh, In fact, he describes one young lady. He gives her the name Alexandra Court, 
probably not her real name, I'm sure, but she's a real person. And this uh, young lady is tall. She's attractive. She's impeccably dressed all the time, very sure of herself. She's kind of queen of the inter-tight little clique that everybody looks to and everybody likes and everybody kind of longs or wishes they could get into that clique. Every student surveyed at this school listed Alexandra Court as the number one most popular girl in school. You know who they also listed as the number one most disliked girl in school? It was her. It was Alexandra Court. Same thing. Ironically, she's a gossip, apparently. Uh, this young lady is mean to other, other people. She's selfish. Everything is about her. Everything is attract, about attracting attention to her. She's snobbish. She's exclusive. That's one kind of popularity, status popularity. She's just so drop-dead beautiful and always dressed so well. Everybody just has to go, you know, yeah, we get it, man. You, you are popular. Status popularity. Turns out the other kind of popularity is quite different. Princeton uses the word likability to describe this kind of popularity. It's likability, popularity. And he defines it in very interesting terms because he says, likability, popularity comes to people who actually are other-centered. Wow, wow. This is what Jesus would probably call loving others, (laughs) caring about others. Status seekers, (coughs) in contrast, focus on themselves. Likeable people, likable popularity, they focus on you. They focus on me. They're other-centered. So interesting. Status people talk about themselves. Status popular people promote themselves. Status popular people consider themselves actually better than other people. Yeah, I ought to be popular, you know, kind of an attitude. Likeable people, you know what they do a lot? This was fascinating to me. They listen a lot. Wow, they're genuinely interested in what's happening in your life, or at least they seem to be. And they have likable popularity. When you're with a status seeker, you kind of feel less than them, not really important. And and you kind of glom on to them because, you know, just by being around them, others perceive you as being at least a little bit popular. But you find out when you're in that clique and in that circle, it's really all about that person, not about you, not in any way, shape or form. And when you're with a likable person, in contrast, you feel kind of called to be your best. They're actually encouraging you. They're listening to you. They're saying, no, you can do it. And your life kind of feels like it matters because this likable, popular person is saying it matters. It's just struck me reading through this stuff that, that uh, what Princeton gives the label likable, you know, this, this, this thing to, to be trustworthy, to genuinely care for other people, to will their good, to desire their good. That really involves the same qualities that Jesus describes with a word that sounds very churchy to us when we hear it or when we say it, but it's a word that we have already run across and we'll run across it again and we'll keep running across it in the Sermon on the Mount and it's the word righteous righteous. To live righteously is to care about the things God cares about. And who does God care about most? Well, he cares about people. So caring about other people is to live righteously. Do you see that? To care about them, to understand Jesus. You know, we've, we've looked at this passage actually multiple times. We'll look at it some more times. <coughs> In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, 
<clears throat> excuse me, there's this core statement in the Sermon on the Mount. It's very important. A lot that follows this statement is built off of this core statement. And, and there in that passage, Jesus says, unless your righteousness, there's that word, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, we hear that word righteousness, it kind of sounds like a religious thing of some sort, but really, really, it's very much what this guy Prinstein talks about as likable popularity. It's, it's caring for others. It's loving other people. And now the, the, the problem for people, you see, uh, who suffer from approval addiction is you can never, ever, ever get enough approval. You know what? I want, I want to back up for a second. We could take that passage, that Matthew 5.20 passage, and I don't know, we might better understand it if we just change a word in it. Change that word righteous to the word likable. It could read like this. Unless your likability, righteousness, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of, what Jesus is saying, it's, that's certainly what Princeton is discovering. Um, now, back to what I said a moment ago. Uh, the, the problem for people who suffer from approval addiction is the problem that we never get enough. You feel that, you approval addicted people? I mean, does one person ever give you approval and it's like, there, I got it, I'm good, I'm satisfied for the rest of my life, I'm done there, right? No, you never get enough. Now, people who study this area say that approval addicts end up engaging in what is sometimes called excessive reassurance seeking. That's a label that they give to approval addicts. They, approval addicts will sometimes engage in excessive reassurance seeking. They're always checking in with you to find out what, what did you think of that? Was that okay? Did you like that? Was that good? Do you approve? Do you like what I just did? Or do you, oh, oh you don't like it? Or, do you, or they're excessively apologizing. That's another version of the same thing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. that hurt your feet? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I'm really, really. No. Okay. 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 Kind of a thing, right? Underneath all of this though, the person person who's on the receiving end of this kind of behavior sort of feels manipulated. I'm just being manipulated. I'm just here to, uh, you know, fulfill your craving for approval. By the way, is this sermon going okay so far? <laughs> are we good? Are we, are we okay? Okay, I'm just, just wondering. Princeton says this is why for young people, things like social media are terribly addictive. Uh, you know, when your brain starts changing to make us crave popularity, social media, man, that's an engine to really, really drive this thing because it's, it's like social, a social rewards dispenser. That's the way Instagram, put my pictures on there, I'll see who looks at them, see who likes them. You know, oh, I'll, I'll post it on Facebook, I'll see if anybody likes it, I'll see if anybody's looking, if anybody cares. Keeping track of your likes and so, with each like, uh, research actually shows, you know, you get, you get a little drop of, of uh, uh, dopamine, which makes you feel good, right? You get a like, a little dopamine. Get another like, a little dopamine. And just to show you how addictive all of this is, here's one illustration I could think of, and I went and checked it out. Uh, because of our craving for popularity, YouTube currently has over 13,000 tutorials about how to take um, the best selfie. 13,000, more than 13,000, how to take the perfect 
selfie. How many tutorials do you think there are on YouTube about how to die to your imperfect little selfie? (laughs) Zero. Not one. I want to share a big secret with you. You see, the alternative to approval addiction is simply this. The alternative to approval addiction, living for the approval of other people, is to learn to live for an audience of one. That's a secret. Don't tell anybody. It's not my secret. There's a guy actually named Soren Kierkegaard who was a Danish philosopher as well as a, a Lutheran believer, talked about this idea of living as though I have an audience which exists or consists really only of God, only of God. And he talked about living your life this way, developing that pattern and that way of thinking. It's a very uh, insightful observation. And partly because what he recognized was that human beings are made for approval. You don't get to not live seeking approval. We, We just can't help ourselves. I mean, look at a little baby, for example. When they're loved, when they're noticed, when they're delighted in, they just beam, they just radiate joy, and we can, the coo, and you know, and we look at that, and we know that's good. We just instinctively know that that's a good thing for this little one. So the question, you see, really isn't, will I seek approval? You will seek approval. The question is, where will I seek it? That's the question. I have an infinite need for approval. That's just true about me. That's actually part of being a human being. I'm not self-sufficient. I, I, can't, <coughs> I can't just live in myself and find in me all the approval I need. No human being works that way. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not self-satisfied. I'm always looking out there for things to satisfy. I'm always looking for approval. I'm a derivative creature created by God. I seek approval. Now, interestingly enough, God has an infinite supply of approval. Did you know that? Because of who he is, he has an infinite supply of approval. And let me just underline this. Only God has that. Only God. No human being out there has an infinite supply of approval they can give you. And so the more you look to any particular human being to give you approval, the more they're going to run out of it and be unwilling to give it. But God has an infinite supply. Jesus said, if you want to become a good person and live the good life, you must enter into the kingdom of God. And you must live your life before God to please God and to be approved by God. You must find your security in God's approval. God's love. Now, there's kind of an interesting little caveat to all this, which if I don't mention is then means I'm not really telling the whole truth. On one level, you, you, you can never get the approval of God because there's something in you broken. The Bible calls it sin. There's a brokenness in you that even when you do good, this is you, not me, just to be clear, because when you do good, it's really not perfect, pure good. It's good all laced up with other stuff in it. Have you noticed that about yourself? That even when you're doing good, you know, I'm doing good to you and I'm patting myself on the back. Dang, I'm good. You know, I mean, is that, there's that brokenness in us. There's no way that you can earn the approval of God. But here's the interesting thing. When we put our faith in Jesus, 
Not only are our sins and that brokenness that I'm talking about, that's forgiven, but we're also told that an exchange happens. We're actually given a righteousness. There's that word again, a righteousness that comes from Jesus. And that righteousness is wholly, completely, 100% sufficient to make me acceptable and approved in God's sight. And so now when I do good, even though it's kind of messed up, it's not really pure, it's not perfect or anything like that, the Bible says that God still just delights in the fact that I'm trusted in Jesus. I'm sure not perfect, but I did good and God is approving that. And so, you know, uh, we have to live our life before God to please God, to be approved by God in this sense, the sense I just talked about. And so we have to find our security in God's love. We have to find our identity in his truth, what he says about me, not what you say about me, you see. And we have to learn to live for God's approval, not human approval. In fact, the Bible says you cannot actually live for both human approval and divine approval at the same time. You can't do it. You can't, you have to choose between the two. And guess what? You get to choose over and over and over and over, day in, day out. You get to choose whose approval you're living for. The apostle Paul knew something about this. Once upon a time, he was one of those guys called a Pharisee and he was very much about getting the approval of people. That's what he lived for. And then he met Jesus and things started to change. And the apostle Paul was writing to a church in Galatia and he said this, he said, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ because you have to choose. It's one or the other. Is it gonna be God or is it gonna be people? In the gospel of John, John talks about a group of people who actually believed in Jesus, but then he describes them this way. He says, they loved human praise more than praise from God. Whoa, an interesting way to describe people. The apostle Paul again writes to a church at Corinth and there's this kind of mess going on there. People are questioning Paul's authority. Uh, They are believing that Paul is not the best apostle, not the best communicator, not the one with the most authority. And the apostle Paul's writing to this church and this is what he writes to them. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. He just admits a lot of times when he's judging himself, he gets it wrong. Now that little phrase is a really good one. (coughs) And I actually recommend it to you. If you wanna work on approval addiction, this is a good thing to grab hold of. I care very little. Now we could bring that more into our common parlance. The way we would, you know, paraphrase that probably is to say, I don't care. That's really what he's saying. I don't care. Let's just all say that together, in fact. Let's say it, okay? I don't care. You can do better, say it. I don't care. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I don't care if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. I don't care, he says. Now, that that can really be tremendously liberating to us if we would put this into practice using just those words. This week, when some fashion expert doesn't approve of your clothes, just say, I don't care, okay? When somebody who uh, comes to visit your home and they don't like your, your decorating for some reason, I mean, you know, they're, they're maybe they're expert decorators, but they don't like the way you've done things. Just say to yourself or say to them, and you can say it with me right now, let's just say it. I don't care when the cool kids don't approve of your taste of music or your politics or your faith or something you say or something you do, just say, let's say it together. I don't care. 
When a coworker doesn't like your idea, dismisses your idea, doesn't give you recognition for what you do, learn to use these words and just say it. Let's say it together. I don't care. When a law enforcement officer doesn't like how fast you're driving. <laughs> no, don't say it then. <laughs> that would be bad. Don't, don't say that. <clears throat> now, let, let, me, let me qualify what I'm saying. Because when you take I don't care into this week, it doesn't mean I don't care about you. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying to that person who has an opinion, you don't matter. Because that wouldn't be true. Shouldn't be true. What it means is we're really just saying when we say I don't care, we're saying, you know what? I live for an audience of one and that one is not you. It's him. That's who I live for. Now understand, God is not calling you to win the universal approval of people. He's not. I remember when I started first uh, working at a church many, many years ago, thinking everybody would like me. Hey, I work at a church. What, how can you not like me, right? And I've worked now at a church for nearly 40 years, and guess what I've discovered? I've discovered that you can get all of the people to like you some of the time. And you can get some of the people to uh, like you all of the time, <laughs> a very small sum. Um, and you can never get all the people to like you all the time. You just can't. And therefore, stop trying. Stop trying to get the people to, here's the amazing thing. This is life in the kingdom of God. Are you ready for this? This is big news right here. Big, 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 big news. This is it. Jesus likes you. Jesus likes you. Go figure. I don't know why he likes you, but he does. And he likes me. Go figure. He just does. He made us. He died for us. He likes us. He loves us. There's a little kid's song. It's a great song. It's so theologically impactful and powerful if we would embrace it. Jesus loves me. And then it says, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. You see, that is living in the reality of the kingdom of God. That is living right there for an audience of one. And Jesus goes on to for us to, to help us in this whole approval addiction thing by naming the consequences of living to impress others, performing to impress others, doing things to be seen by others. You see, in that day, as I said earlier, it was often religious performance which set you apart and put you on a pedestal <clears throat> and made you popular. In our day, it might be working hard or athletic achievement or academic achievement. It can be all different kinds of things. Jesus says this, he says, if you live that way to be seen by others, if that's what you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. That's a consequence. And uh, we're gonna see in Matthew chapter six over the next couple of weeks, Jesus will go on to talk about this thing of rewards, rewards from your heavenly father. He says, if you do things to be seen by people, then you will have a certain reward. People will notice you. Maybe they will highly esteem you, but you won't get a reward from your heavenly father. 
Now, however, he says, if you do stuff in secret where only God can see, then God will reward you. And the rewards that Jesus is talking about, we need to discuss this just for a moment. <coughs> These rewards that Jesus is talking about, uh, it, it's, it's not like handing out candy. They have nothing uh, to, to do with like getting a gold star for religious good behavior. That, that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. The rewards that Jesus is talking about have to do with character change. In other words, when your heavenly father sees you doing good in secret, it, it has to do with character change. It has to do with soul satisfaction. It has to do with life purpose. These are the things that the heavenly father will work in us, change and transformation that deepen our character as a result of doing these good things in secret. Living in the kingdom of God, living for an audience of one just changes you. That's what it does. And this is what Jesus wants for you and wants for me. This is where we become truly good people. And Jesus gives us two great practices, two great spiritual disciplines to help us overcome things like the problem of approval addiction. Can I mention them to you? By the way, how's this sermon going so far? I mean, you're looking a little asleep or whatever, but these are spiritual disciplines to help us overcome approval addiction. The first is this, it's the discipline of secrecy. The discipline of secrecy. Actually, the whole first part of Matthew chapter six is an invitation to use this discipline. Jesus says, when you give, give in secret rather than announcing your gift to everybody. When you pray, pray in secret rather than standing on a street corner, you know, loudly proclaiming so everybody can hear you pray. When you fast, he says, fast in secret. Now again, this is sometimes misunderstood. This is not Jesus giving new laws. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying anytime you pray, never, ever, ever do it with other people. Uh, it always has to be done in secret. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's giving us a practice that will be helpful for you if you struggle with approval addiction. This is a practice you can perform, something that will help you grow. It's not a mechanical law, but for people who struggle with approval addiction, practicing doing what you do in secret can be very, very freeing. And I've shared many times with you all how the approval of others is definitely an area where I struggle. And so I have actually put Jesus' practice, the practice of secrecy, into place. In fact, every good thing that has ever happened to you that was good and you couldn't explain who did it or how it happened, that was me. <laughs> that was just me doing good for you. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. But I really have practiced this. Uh, I, I tried to put into play what I think Jesus is offering here uh, as a means, as a tool to overcome approval addiction. And at first it just feels so weird. Why would I ever do that? Why would I want to do something you don't know about? Because I want you to know about it because I want you to approve of me. You see how stupid all that is. But when you start doing this and practicing this, doing good in secret, something happens. Something inside you begins to change and you start to feel the joy, the blessing, the delight of your heavenly father. Nobody else needs to know, but he knows. And character transformation happens. Something good happens as a result of this. Do something good and don't let anybody else know. It'll feel terrible at first <laughs> for you, those of you who are approval addicted. 
But it's so freeing. Jesus says, as you do this, you will discover you don't need to impress other people in order to live a joy-filled life. You will discover that knowing that he is delighting in you, that he, the audience of one, sees what's going on, that will become more important to you than anything else you'll actually begin to experience freedom because when you do that too, your heavenly father who is unseen sees what you have done in secret and he rewards you. And that's the kind of reward he gives, that internal change. You will become the kind of person who can live in love and live in joy and do what's right regardless what other people think. That's very significant. Jesus is saying, you do that, you practice secrecy. Do, do something good for somebody and don't let them know. You know, a week or so ago, we talked about loving your enemies. Pick an enemy, do something good for them. Don't tell them it was you that did it. And just revel in the fact that your heavenly father sees and knows and will reward you. Write, write them an anonymous note to encourage them. Do them a favor, clean up a mess, whatever your list would have on it. Do something, do good things and don't tell anybody about it. You do that, I promise you, I guarantee you, it will change you. It just will over time. You'll begin to experience freedom from approval addiction and a sense of approval from God. And that, friends, is living life in the kingdom. That's the dynamic. Now, second practice. And this is an implicit practice. It's not one that Jesus specifically mentions here, but it's one that over and over and over in his life and in his ministry, he's always calling people to this. And that is the discipline of community. This is so vitally important, I, I, I really can't overemphasize it. It's about getting into a community where people accept you not based on performance. Getting in a small community where other people are learning to step into Jesus' love and Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' sufficiency and Jesus' approval. And because they're doing that, they learn then to love others in the group selfishly. Selflessly, I think is the word I was actually looking for. <laughs> selflessly, unconditionally. You will experience a little bit of the taste of being loved and, and not being loved conditionally, you know, if you perform. Now we get this way wrong in small groups. Small groups are made up of people. It means there's always problems in small groups. Don't misunderstand me or, or uh, hear me saying something I'm not. Your small group is not a panacea of, you know, heavenly bliss or some such thing as that. It's anything but. How many of you have been in a bad group before? How many of you? See, look at that, look at that. If you're new to Deer Creek, you, you'll be looking around going, I don't want to get in a group with any of those people. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, bad groups happen all the time, but so do good groups. And good groups are just people stepping into trusting in Jesus, hearing his message of love, acceptance, approval, forgiveness, and that frees them up to love and accept and approve others. And that's the dynamic of being in a community. And really, gang, that's why we exist as a church. We're in the business of trying to live this stuff out and it's always messy. It's always messy. But the discipline of community is one of the things that Jesus has given us to help us to become more like him. And that's just a fact. Um, two things that, that a, a follower of Jesus is always moving forward in or should be, and that is, understanding that they are known by God and understanding at the same time that they are accepted by God. Do you know what it's like to be known by God and to be fully accepted? That's the best feeling, the best certainty that a human being can have. I'm fully known and fully accepted. 
And Jesus wants us to learn to love other people like that as we get to know them and know the truth about them. He wants us to uh, be an example of fully accepting them. It's so interesting to me in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were there before the fall, before sin entered the picture. They were both fully known and fully accepted by God and even by each other. You know, they were naked, we're told. Did you know that? They were naked in the garden. No clothes, not a stitch of clothes. And um, they were not ashamed. That means they were fully known, fully exposed, but they were not ashamed. They were fully accepted. That was bliss. That's what we were actually meant for, is getting a taste of being known, fully known, and fully accepted. Well, we get a taste of that in our small groups because all of our small groups, you know, we do them naked. No, we don't. We do not do that. I don't even know why I said that. It's not even in my notes, but, but it just seemed like something to say at the time. I don't know. No. You can't even reel that back in. I mean, uh, we're going to cut that out of the live stream somehow because there's like a seven-second delay or something. Like that. <coughs> anyway, anyway, my point is, that in small groups, as imperfect as they are, there are places to practice. Practice being known, praying for each other, supporting each other, loving each other, and practice being accepted even when we blow it. That's why we're always harping on small groups. I don't know how you can grow and not be in one, really. I really don't. And it's easy to get in one. You can go online and check them out and We'll help you with that if you want. Here's my point. Don't do life alone. Don't do life without knowing the accepting love of God. It's a sweet, sweet thing to taste the approval of God, to know that he has an infinite ability to approve of you and to love you even when you fail. And when we live in that knowledge, we're really living for an audience of one. Was that okay? Was that message okay? Was it, oh, was it, it was okay? Okay, pray with me. Father God, we can chuckle and laugh at ourselves and indeed we need to. Uh, but you are good, God, and you are, you are loving, you are forgiving, you are approving. And go figure, we don't even always understand why, but it's, it's the love of Jesus, it's the provision of Jesus, it's the righteousness that Jesus gives us. All of these things, all of these gifts, we, we, we say thank you. Help us to be a people who turn around and love others the way you love us. Help us to help each other grow. Help us to do acts of kindness secretly, Lord and gain freedom from the approval, seeking the approval of others and help us to practice the discipline of community with each other so we can grow together in these things. We ask for Jesus' sake and we ask it in his name, amen.